law, policy, and markets. Year after year, the number one threat identified by our nation's spy agencies and the director of the Office of National Intelligence, the number one threat year after year was malicious cyber activity. Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by two colleagues from Washington, D.C. Dara Panahi, a partner in Milbank's Transportation and Space Group and head of Milbank's Global Risk and National Security Practice, and Glenn Gerstel, who for nearly 40 years was a partner at Milbank and who recently retired from the National Security Agency, where he served as general counsel from 2015 until 2020. Let's get to it. More than 2,400 years ago, Sun Tzu wrote, The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. There are two perspectives from which to examine cybersecurity. One is the big picture. Are we safe as a nation? The other is more immediate. What should my company or institution be doing now to identify and protect against cyber threats, to detect and respond to attacks in real time, and to recover afterwards? Today with my guests, Glenn Gerstel and Dara Panahi, we will look at this issue in depth from both sides in the context of a still broader question. As technology evolves, how can we become more resilient while remaining more connected? Glenn, at the NSA, when you were general counsel, I know you focused on the NSA's two broad missions, foreign intelligence and information security, including cybersecurity. With respect to information assurance and cybersecurity in particular, are we in fact safer or less safe now than a decade ago? I suppose the short answer to that is yes, meaning yes, we are both safer and less safe. And I don't, I don't mean to be flip about it, but on one hand, we clearly are much safer because we now have all sorts of focus and attention on cybersecurity. We've implemented all sorts of uh, cybersecurity best practices across a wide range of industries. At home, we mostly practice, mostly utilize a two-factor authentication on emails. We're all aware of phishing schemes. There's a general heightened sense among not only individuals, but businesses about cybersecurity. And clearly we are much, much safer. I feel very comfortable, for example, in all my banking on online banking transactions. And I didn't feel that way several years ago. So that's the good part. By contrast, we are, and, and I should add, we're also able to do a lot more now can conduct all sorts of business online. So if you look at it as a proportional matter, namely the ratio of the cybersecurity threat relative to the benefit we get from being online, I don't know that it's remained constant or whatever. My sense is that probably the benefit has grown dramatically and so has the cybersecurity risk and vulnerability. It's sort of a two-sided coin because the criticality and, and utility on one side also leads to vulnerability on the other side. But it's also true that in, I think in some sense, if you had to pin me down, I'd probably say the cybersecurity threat is getting worse in the sense that it's more sophisticated and the speed at which the cybersecurity threat develops uh, outpaces our ability to effectively address it. It's always the case that the cybersecurity criminals are just one step ahead and then we catch up and figure out a way to do it. So for example, as recently as a few months ago, we were quite worried and still are worried about ransomware, but we said to ourselves, okay, the solution to that is to have backup data 
And uh, as long as you have a backup, even if you had ransomware lock up your computers, your data center, you'd be okay because you could have a backup. Well, now we're seeing cyber criminals have such sophisticated ransomware that it kills the backup ability for the last few weeks and then springs into action with its ransomware lockup. So all of a sudden, we're now having to deal with an entirely new threat. As I said, we've come a long way from when cybersecurity was simply worrying about those nasty, funny emails from Nigerian princes demanding additional money, but it's gotten a lot more sophisticated and we are struggling to keep up. So Dara, if you look then at individual businesses, how important is it to identify cyber threats and to integrate that into kind of an inventory of what their IT and operation systems are doing? So it's a very good question, Alan. And you know, in, in whatever context you look at, at it, whether it's the day-to-day corporate compliance and governance context, or whether it's in the context of a financing or an M&A, where cybersecurity had maybe four, five, six, seven years ago, not even been on a check-the-box type a diligence review, but much more as part of a bundled IT review, I can tell you now that that certainly has escalated to one of the tier one diligence areas, as well as one of the higher levels of governance imperatives for many of the companies that we work with. And it's across the board. So it relates to making sure that cybersecurity and cyber management threat protection has become something that is very much receiving the C-level's attention, as well as the board's attention, and that there be in place certain tenants of key compliance and management. So that means having a policy and procedure. That means having accountability in the organization, not just within IT, but outside of IT to make sure that it is being managed properly, making sure that some of the best practices elements, such as not just the infrastructure necessary to protect against cybersecurity, but audits, intentional cyber intrusion attempts as part of an audit, a recovery plan, and in some cases, things such as insurance be all in place and be tested for resilience and for their efficacy to make sure that as an enterprise, one can not only survive the cyber threats because they're becoming part of the sort of daily diet of activity, but in fact, as an evergreen process, use things that happen to bolster and improve the company's compliance function. Because as we've seen, whether it be the Marriott case and dozens of other cases that have occurred, when it does occur, it can be debilitating and extremely distractive. It's not just dollars and cents, but it's the amount of time and effort management and external advisors have to spend to remediate the problem, to plug the hole, if you will, fix it, and then make sure it doesn't happen again. And that it's important to understand, is an evergreen process. As Glenn mentioned, it's a cat and mouse game between the criminals and the specialists that engage in this and the companies that are at risk for the impact of what happens. And we're trying to get our clients to understand you need to be proactive, not reactive. Glenn, has the pandemic revealed new vulnerabilities too? There's a saying that historians have that pandemics don't change history, they accelerate it. And I think there's, there's definitely some truth to that. It's uh, attempting to make some analogies to broad societal trends that arose and were prompted by the Black Death in 1348, the Spanish flu in 1918, and now the COVID-19 pandemic of, of 2020. I think not only do, do pandemics accelerate some trends, but they also 
like almost any crisis, uh, reveal both strengths and weaknesses. And we certainly, we can talk about the strengths, but I think the sort of more interesting purpose for today's discussion is, is the vulnerabilities and weaknesses. I think there are a handful, or we could point to several, but I think there are a handful of vulnerabilities that have been revealed and accentuated by the pandemic. Uh, one, quite clearly, and this doesn't require any special pair of eyeglasses to witness, but the pandemic has made clear that, that due to technology, we now have all sorts of layers, complicated layers of global dependencies, trade, whether it's trade, transportation, finance, et cetera. Uh, we all knew that. It's, it's an obvious point, but the the real extent of it is made manifest uh, by the disruptions associated with the pandemic. Uh, secondly, after the 2008 recession, American companies and companies around the world, but especially American companies, took great efforts to wring out any inefficiencies in their supply chain and try to get just-in-time manufacturing in low-cost environments overseas. That was terrific. That enabled uh, incredible cost savings. But the flip side of that, the vulnerability side of that, of course, is lack of resilience because you have single source suppliers, you're dependent on certain modes of transportation. And who would think that a pandemic affecting Wuhan, China, would have something to do with what's on your supermarket shelf here in the United States? But clearly it does. So I think we weren't fully ready for that. We weren't really ready for the advent of remote working, uh, working from home, which the pandemic has forced uh, tens of millions, not all, there are many jobs that can't be sourced at home, can't be done at home. But clearly there's been an acceleration of the trend to work at home. It, it exposed the vulnerabilities. It also exposed the good capabilities we have of being able to run businesses. Pretty fascinating how much can be done online. And of course, the fascinating question will be just how much of this reverts to the normal businesses of being conducted in offices and how much uh, can remain online and uh, what cost savings will result from that. Another vulnerability and indication of how social norms aren't quite caught up with the technology has been made clear in the current debates over surveillance for public health. Just what kind of surveillance do we want for public health? Is it okay for governments to track our whereabouts to see where infections may be spreading? Is it okay for telephones to have an app on them that reports your location and who you've been in contact with for purposes of perfectly good purposes, namely not uh, keeping track of a disease, but our society isn't quite sure what kind of surveillance it wants. So these are all vulnerabilities and social norms that have been revealed due to the pandemic. Alan, I'll add a little bit to that, if I may. I think from the practical perspective, um, much of what Glenn has mentioned has very much put the microscope on the practical elements of when cybersecurity on an enterprise basis works and when it doesn't. And good examples are that, for example, if, if there hasn't been proper training in terms of doing the simple things, such as when you get an email from somebody who you work with, but you don't paint the email address to make sure it's actually that person and it's not somebody else, or, or just the, the typical first layer of awareness and surveillance over how you act online, given that many people are working at home, not all of them are working on their work machines. Some of them are tunneling on personal machines into their corporate VPNs or into their, you know, whatever the uh, equivalent of that is. Many of the more sophisticated cyber attacks essentially take advantage of that. You kindly sent us an article uh, that was printed in New York Times about the specific targeting of at-home work where 
there may be vulnerabilities that don't exist had employees been sitting at their home, at, sorry, at their work machine with that situational awareness. And so there is a gap that's created by the coronavirus in the practical reality of working at home. The devices being used, many people are multitasking by using their mobile phone, either to conduct Zooms or to conduct business while they have a laptop or another device ongoing. And so each time you increase the number of electronic devices, which are not fully secured or which are not used to a particular modus operandi, in terms of the precautions you take, you add by a factor the risk and the vulnerability of a cyber attack. So I would say in a practical level, it certainly has shown the vulnerabilities and the exposures, but as Glenn said, it's also educational. So a company that has a robust policy and procedure, a robust IT system and is monitoring it can very quickly learn and react from these situations. And that is, I guess, a net positive if you look at it that way. I appreciate that. So there's some themes here, right? Because as you accelerate these trends and connectedness becomes more critical, at the same time, we become more vulnerable because of that. That's going to affect the role reversal and the relationships, I suppose, between the government and the private sector. Absolutely, Alan. In some respects, I think we are about to see one of the most fundamental transformations in American history uh, is probably arguably since World War II in terms of the change in relationship between the government and the private sector. You know, it used to be that governments for centuries have been the only ones capable of projecting national war power, creating military machines, creating weapons, etc. And it was the private sector that was largely free to fulfill its own, at least in the West, its own commercial enterprises. And there was a pretty sharp line between national security and, uh, and what the private sector did. That line is getting, getting blurred. And indeed, power is shifting from governments to the private sector, all because of technology. We're seeing the private sector amass more data due to the advent of 5G telephony, the adoption of proliferation of the Internet of Things, cloud computing the extraordinary role that we will about to see for artificial intelligence, all of this will create incomprehensible amounts of data in the private sector's hands, more than any government could possibly, more than any surveillance-happy government could ever, ever hope for. That's going to, in effect, cause a change in the balance of power, because to go back to the earl our earlier comments, all that valuable, incredibly revealing data in the hands of the private sector introduces a vulnerability and a criticality which is to say that it'll affect our national well-being if there's mischief or havoc associated with it. And that, in turn, is the definition of national security, namely our national well-being. When I was a kid, there was no one company that really could have affected our national well-being. Oh, I suppose maybe if General Motors stopped producing cars, that would have had a little bit of an effect over time, but it would have been attenuated, would have been lots of ways to offset it. And here now, to use a slightly different analogy, a malicious video spreading on Facebook in the matter of hours can, can cause national disruptions. It can also lead to benefits, such as we saw with the George Floyd, the reaction to the, to the recent killing and the, the increased protests for racial justice. So, it, I mean, it has benefits as well as negatives. But we're clearly at a point where the private sector is, is about to undergo a transformation and have a lot more power and data associated with it and therefore responsibility. And that'll be a fundamental change. My last comment is just one example. Again, when I was younger and when most of us would watch TV and look at the 
spacecraft launched by either the Russian governments or the United States governments by NASA. Just a few weeks ago, we saw a private launch vehicle and a private manned spacecraft. Who possibly could have imagined that a decade ago? Yeah, you bring up an interesting point too, though, when you, when you talk about public and private and the different spheres they have, not just with respect to the collection of, of information, the collection of data, but also manipulation or application of data. So I know in looking at Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and this whole question about free speech and platforms and liability for being a platform that has users expressing views, we've bumped up against questions of whose role is it and how should the private companies and the government either collaborate or cooperate or compete with respect to regulating that public space because that social connectedness could also lead to social manipulation. And that gets us also then, I guess, into you know security of elections and, and all the rest of it. How do you see that evolving? Either how would you wish it to evolve or how do you actually see it likely to evolve? Well, we're certainly seeing the effects of technological growth and maturation in this area at a time when the internet was nascent and we wanted to encourage its development. It's, it made sense, I think, to have some kind of liability shield, which is embodied in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, as you've alluded to, which basically says that platform owners, telecom operators, cloud computing operators, are not responsible for content. There are some exceptions, but that's the essence of the idea. And, and the thought was we want to, public policy matter, allow the growth of, of electronic communication systems unhindered by fear of liability if someone happens to post something that offends someone or is criminal in some way. And that made sense at a time when it didn't have much impact on our society. But now here we are, essentially only a decade away, and that's a fascinating point to see how technology has become so impactful in such a short period of time. I might add, to digress for a second, in sharp contrast to other technologies, railroads, electricity, the telephone itself, which took decades before they matured and had a level of impactfulness on our everyday lives that the digital revolution has had with our lives, which is in less than a decade. But we're seeing now that electronic communication, electronic dispersal of information can have an extraordinary effect in a democracy. And we're worried both about misinformation, we're worried about political influence from overseas who should not be, uh, foreign parties who should not be affecting our democracy, and of course, we're also worried about criminal conduct, such as uh, child pornographers who are able to post uh, illegal images online and the carriers and platforms associated with it are, are not responsible. To be fair, they make an effort to deal with it, but it's not complete. I think the time is ripe not for a repeal of Section 230, which I personally would not support, but a more nuanced approach to it, allowing exceptions to the liability shield where appropriate and imposing some greater responsibility, not complete, but some greater levels of responsibility on communications platforms that, after all, affirmatively shape the news we look at. Their algorithms on social media platforms, whether it's Facebook, Google, Instagram, whatever, um, shape the news we see. So it's not fair for them to say, on one hand, we want the right to shape the news, but we don't want to be responsible for it. Dara, if you look at individual companies, they have responsibilities to their customers, to their employees, to their shareholders or equity owners for sure. If you're a corporate CEO and someone comes in and says, hey, we need a cybersecurity plan, what's our plan? 
What is it that you would tell them is the most important reason to do this, aside from continuity operations and resilience? Well, apart from all of the business imperatives, continuity of operations, shareholder value, your fiduciary duties, from a practical standpoint, if you want it to really resonate with the C-suite and with the board is, if you don't take the best practices path, if you don't take the time, money, and effort to build the ecosystem necessary to have effective cybersecurity and to have an evergreen cybersecurity process, you and your management team are going to be spending an awful lot of time essentially engaging in trench warfare when the incursions occur, the distraction and the effort and the impact on your time and on your ability to otherwise manage and govern the business is going to be significantly impacted. We, for better or worse, don't have to create doom and gloom scenarios because they have occurred. Major companies, including global Fortune 500s, have had this happen to them. And in some cases, because of the timing of when it happened, it impacted, let's say, an active M&A deal that had to be delayed by over a year because the suitor or the prospective acquirer was uncomfortable with what happened. And it took a year for the company, the target company, to recover and to demonstrate that it now has the capabilities to reasonably address cyber threats. And so if, if we are asked to advise a management or a board, why do you do this and why it's important to do this? It's because it's part of the first tier of responsibilities that management and directors have to ensure that the business can be governed appropriately, can be protected appropriately, and is not subject to, for lack of a better description, reckless risk. I'd like to add to that if I could. I think Dara's points are exactly correct. I consult with a number of companies, and I've been struck by, to Dara's point, there's no question that in the C-suite, they get it. Every CEO and CISO certainly understands the need for cybersecurity, as, as Dara has just outlined. But there are two, I would say, impediments that we see in addition to others. One is the obvious one, which is that the expense is just extraordinary. And when you have legacy systems that need to be changed and there are competing priorities for a CEO to make a decision about, a CEO is going to make a risk-based decision. Obviously, we could drive cybersecurity risk down to almost zero. That's good. But what a cost in functionality and the rest of the business may suffer, and it may be wildly expensive. So the cost equation can't be ignored and has to be part of an overall risk analysis, which is why it's so important for the chief information security officer to be present in the budget discussions, along with the chief information officer, et cetera. And it's not just simply a decision made in the abstract. The second thing, which cuts against that also, is that, and I just was with a company that had this very problem, is that despite the very best cybersecurity intentions, the fact of the matter is that some cybersecurity vulnerabilities and risks simply can't be remedied. So I was dealing with a healthcare institution that was able to take all sorts of sophisticated steps to protect its email systems, its own data and customer records, patient billing records, et cetera. But a number of medical devices were using Windows, I can't remember, seven or eight or nine or some a legacy system. These were pieces of medical equipment that were attached to the network, and there, were, there is nothing to secure them. They have legacy systems. The manufacturers either went out of business, stopped updating it, whatever, 
And there is no way to patch vulnerabilities, at least certainly not easy, and in some cases not at all. So our military knows this problem in spades, but it, it certainly is true in the private sector where it's not just simply a question of, oh, just throw money at the problem and it'll go away. So, Dara, if you're looking at a private company which is using a third party, they're outsourcing either IT management, uh, cloud storage, or, or even basic operating and control systems uh, that are important to their business, how should that company protect itself when they have those third parties and where the liabilities flow? Well, that's an awfully good question because one of the key considerations for companies is when not just in a typical outsourcing scenario, but even in, in the more, I would say, rudimentary situations where there is some level of data that typically will sit outside a company's IT system. It could be how they store data. It could be um, how they manage simple things like payroll or otherwise. It's very important for a company to do a deep dive and assess the policies, procedures, considerations of its outsourced suppliers. And you really have to treat them as if they are you. You really have to have the same level of scrutiny and oversight in terms of the comfort level that one would have in outsourcing that activity, because whether the data is on a recurring basis outsourced or provided, or as we say in the industry, dumped to that party so that they can manage it, or whether there is an open channel, open link to the company's own IT system, for better or worse, it has to be viewed practically as within the boundary of the company's IT system. And the company has to be very comfortable that the outsourced party is adhering to the practices that they're comfortable with. And to Glenn's point, it's absolutely right. At the end of the day, it's risk management and it's cost benefit, and no system is 100% secure. But at the same time, and you know, as Glenn said, it cuts against it. If you have a company that is looking at, is being asked a question and they say, we have no problems or we haven't had any cyber intrusions or we have zero issues, to us, that's one of the primary red flags, whether that occurs inside the fence line or with a third-party supplier, because typically that shows that there's either, in the worst case, lack of candor regarding what's happening, but even more nefarious could be that there's either lack of concern or neglect or unawareness of what's going on. So there is no perfect system. One would have to treat the outsourced parties assume that they are essentially the same as the company's own enterprise system and make sure that you get comfortable that the vendor is adhering to the practices that are appropriate for the company. So I know there's different ways one can approach cybersecurity. There's, you know, look at the different types of threats, denial of service, stealing information, ransomware, and so forth. I know in my own space in energy and infrastructure, you know, companies are very concerned about the resiliency and security of communications and, and energy and water networks and are focused maybe less on IT and more on operating systems and industrial control systems. Another way to look at it, though, is where is the threat coming from? So, Glenn, I could ask you, if you look at foreign threats especially, and I know there's four countries, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, that are often identified as foreign adversaries to give rise to concern, how do the threats differ from nation-state actors versus cyber criminals versus hacktivists or others? Alan, for the past several years, not this year, but for the four, five, six years before that, Congress has held an annual global threats hearing, which is both public and then there's a classified piece to it. I sat in on both the public and classified pieces for the last five years. 
And it was fascinating that year after year, the number one threat identified by our nation's spy agencies and the director of the Office of National Intelligence, the number one threat year after year was not North Korean nuclear missiles, not Chinese submarines, not whatever, but the threat of malicious cyber activity. It is a very serious threat. We have a domestic component to it, but the most pernicious threat is from overseas. You are correct that there are four countries that our national security apparatus has identified as being the source of the bulk of serious cyber threat. There's something called advanced persistent threats, APTs, in the cybersecurity interest, in cybersecurity uh, industrial sector, as they're called. And it's Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Two of them, Iran and North Korea, are probably more limited in their activities. Iran is up to some general mischief. A number of their foreign cyber actors have been indicted. They've been tried to get into both infrastructure and banking systems in the United States. We've seen that with criminal in- indictments against ones we've been able to attribute and identify. North Korea, the same. Obviously, one big splash was the Sony attack years ago on Sony Pictures in Culver City. And pretty fascinating. Had, had North Korea launched a missile against Sony Pictures in Culver City, we know what the response would have been. It probably would have been involved in a B-52. But instead, the response from our government was, I wouldn't say nothing, that's not fair, but certainly did not involve a robust muscular response. There were sanctions and and diplomatic protests, et cetera. But a response to a cyber attack isn't necessarily going to be responded to in kind. North Korea is principally interested in getting money for their authoritarian regime. So they're looking at cryptocurrency theft and, and to some extent banking theft around the world, including in the United States. China is principally focused through a whole-of-nation approach, a fascinating whole-of-nation approach on what has been called the greatest transfer of wealth in history, namely the cyber theft of intellectual property from America and Western Europe. It is on an extraordinary, almost incomprehensible scale, involving not only the entire Chinese security apparatus, but state-owned enterprises and Chinese commercial enterprise itself, with a very, very focused attempt to obtain technology in in particular areas. We've seen there have been a couple of cases, lawsuits involving theft of information in the solar energy area, in chemicals area. This cannot be understated in any way. And then finally, we have what to me is the most, I guess I'd say evil, which is Russia. Russia is not so much interested in stealing money or stealing intellectual property. It's not quite sure what the hell they could do with intellectual property even if they got it. By the way, we're dealing with a country that has the GDP of less than Pennsylvania and Illinois. So here's a relatively small country in economic terms, and yet look at the havoc it produces because of the low barriers of entry for malicious cyber activity. What Russia is principally interested in is is two things. One, some ransomware through cyber criminals that are connected and tolerated by the Kremlin. And then secondly, disinformation and misinformation spread by the Internet Research Agency and other arms of the Kremlin, some through enterprises that are closely connected to the Kremlin, and some through the Russian military intelligence unit called the GRU, and some through the Russian equivalent of the CIA, which is the FSB, who, by the way, is much more sophisticated than their GRU counterparts. Their GRU counterparts are a little clumsy and sometimes end up getting caught. We saw a few years ago that a couple of their agents were arrested by the Dutch police after they were trying to 
do surveillance on the Organization for the Prohibition, Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in The Hague, which in turn was looking at those poisonings in Salisbury, England. So they figured, why don't we go hack the organization? And of course, they were caught red-handed. Very, very serious threats by all four countries, and that's not the, that's not the whole of it. So, Dara, if you look at this from a national standpoint, from a national security standpoint, very easy to draw lines around borders. But we also have companies that operate internationally. You're dealing with CFIUS approvals for M&A clearance when a foreign company is buying into a United States enterprise. We have companies that have to comply with different rules for cybersecurity and other things in the EU versus North America versus Latin America and elsewhere. How does a multinational footprint of companies in our economies bump up against and, and work within that kind of nation state framework? Very good question, Alan. In a sense, most companies, when they engage in their cybersecurity assessment, have to look very carefully at where the nodes of risk are. So are there servers located in certain countries? Are there offices located in certain countries? Where are the systems and where are the various endpoints or, or other elements which would make the company vulnerable? to a cyber attack. And this also raises the specter of the insider threat, which we'll get to in a moment as, as part of your question. Thankfully, there are global standards and technical standards that are largely accepted by industry that companies can look to in terms of how they manage their cybersecurity, how they organize and implement their IP and IT resiliency so that they can comply with whether it's U.S. regulations or U.S. requirements or, or certain standards, because you know there is no one test that one can meet in order to magically be cyber compliant, if you will, depending on the jurisdiction and depending on the area of the company's industry focus and other factors. There are what we call sort of good practices up to best practices of what companies can engage in, in terms of making stakeholders, whether it's as part of a regulatory review or whether it's part of a third party technical company that's been hired to ensure that a target company is reasonably protected. There are standards that can be adhered to by companies looking to make sure that this is not an area of particular vulnerability. But one area that has proven to be particularly difficult to manage is the what we call the insider threat. And the insider threat comes in two flavors. It's usually mostly, thankfully, just some either lack of understanding, lack of knowledge, um, misuse of a privilege of login credentials. It's, it's an employee that didn't intend to, but somehow caused or resulted in a cyber threat or cyber vulnerability. Then there's a more nefarious element of that, which is an employee that intentionally engaged in activity that caused a cyber vulnerability and or opened the door for a cyber threat. And that can be for a gamut of reasons. It, it could be an employee that's simply upset with the company. It could be a retribution effect. It could be for money. We've seen that actually also play out. We've seen, for example, in a public case, Twitter employees that provided access to certain kinds of facilities in, in connection with allegedly the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia having access to information or have being able to manipulate information. So there is a significant insider risk that has to be managed through a host of different tools. And this obviously includes education, making sure that employees are educated and understand the consequences of actions, whether it's on a mobile device, on a, on a wired or wireless element or, of the IT system. It's IT system having the ability to monitor and to be able to identify threats when they occur. And then obviously the very quick and immediate ability to 
get into remediation, get into continuity, and then sort of solve it. In our own organization, we're taught very carefully, you know, if you get an email from so-and-so, but it's not the mail bank address, immediately do, do these three things. You know, delete, delete out of your outbox, call IT. That kind of very basic uh, behavioral education can go a very long way to solving many of the problems because you, you're able to immediately isolate the problem, get IT involved, and hopefully remediate it before it results into malware, ransomware, or something worse. But coming back to your question, really there are standards that are largely accepted as global standards. And on a cost benefit basis or based on the resources of the company, these standards are adhered to and they're largely accepted across borders. Thanks, Dara. Glenn, I know you've quoted hockey legend Wayne Gretzky in the past and talked about his secret to skate to where the puck is going to be, not just where it's been. If you look at cyber risks and as technology and communications and data usage continues to evolve over the next decade, where's the puck going to be? Well, if I knew where the puck was going to be, I'd probably be pretty wealthy. The short answer, and I don't mean to be flip, is I think none of us know. We have some hints and suggestions as to, as to where it might go. I, for a number of years, would start some morning meetings off in the Joint Operations Center between the United States Cybercom and the National Security Agency, which was a fabulous room filled with all sorts of high-tech electronic equipment, as you would expect. And on one of the one of the most amazing things was a large screen that I don't know must have been I don't know how many feet wide, but twenty feet by twenty feet or something—a giant screen showing worldwide cyber act, malicious activity. And it was just extraordinary to, for me to see how pervasive, how ubiquitous malicious cyber activity is. It's hard to see how that's going to change with low, low barriers to cyber mischief and the vulnerabilities being so great. So I, I don't necessarily think we're going to solve the cybersecurity problem. There isn't a single solution. There isn't one magic bullet that's going to put an end to it. And yet, by the same token, I also can't see us having this podcast 10 years from now saying, gosh, we still have the same cybersecurity problem. So I do think we will make steps. We will take effective steps towards better authentication of users on networks. We will make uh, networks more robust, resilient, and secure. I think we will find ways using everything from facial recognition technology, bio, biotechnical mechanisms, et cetera, to provide a better authentication experience. But I think we're still going to be stuck with the old CIA triad of confidentiality, integrity, and availability, and which is to say that if, you, if we really want to make something highly available, well, then it's probably not going to be, have a super, you know, a very, very limited basis for, for risk. It'll probably be a riskier thing. On the other hand, we could get systems to be super confidential and secure, but then they're awfully clunky and hard to use because you need seven passwords to get into them. So I think that basic dynamic isn't going to change. Where I think we will make some progress is in adopting some norms and policies around how the United States wants to confront the cyber threat from a governmental point of view. I think our society will help, will move along in terms of developing notions of privacy. So we'll have a better understanding of what level of surveillance we're willing to undertake, whether it's everything from facial recognition technology to surveillance for public health reasons. And over time, our nation will slowly, our society will slowly adopt the norms, the, the, the laws, the stability, the policies that are needed to address the odd rush of technology. But I think technology will continue to outpace us. So my bottom line answer is the challenge for us is how to live in a world 
where the risk and technology is outpacing our ability to, to address it every day. And if we can figure out a way to manage that risk, I think we'll end up being in a better place. Yeah, and of course, that means that the evolution is as much in human behavior as it is in technology. You know, I'm kind of reminding you, there's an old Gene Spafford quote about the only truly secure system is the one that's powered off, not a world we want to live in. Well, you don't have to worry about the integrity of data in that system, yes. That's true. That's true. So where do you see the U.S. government moving in terms of how it is organized to confront cyber threats? I think we're on the verge of some transformation in government itself. And the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which many of your listeners will be familiar with, but if not, I urge them to look at the report released this March. It's online from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, issued a very thoughtful report, which didn't have anything really new in it. And I don't mean that as a criticism, but it took, it aggregated all sorts of good ideas that have been floating around in the cyberspace world and distilled them into some very, very excellent, thoughtful recommendations. And one of those recommendations was that we need to address the gaps in organization in the federal government. You know, there are some 60-odd committees and subcommittees of Congress that have jurisdiction over cyber in one form or another, and cyber authority within the executive branch is dispersed among literally every executive branch, including a number of independent commissions. Of course, the bulk of it is housed in the Department of Homeland Security, but even that leaves something to be desired on, in many respects. I don't mean in terms of the quality of their work, I mean in terms of the authorities they have and what they're capable of doing. I think we're going to see, at some level, the appointment of a cybersecurity director as proposed by the commission in the White House, even though the Trump administration is objected to it. And while I used to be opposed to the idea of the creation of a cyber department at the cabinet level, a department of cyber, because I thought it was redundant and, and costly and might not be effective. I've now come to the view that cyber will be of such paramount, overriding, overarching importance in our society that we probably do need a department just focused on cyber. Well, let me ask you a question about that, because you talk about government organization, and I've always been kind of struck just personally that with its when it's executive departments or congressional committees, a lot of it is stuck as 19th century economic boundaries. And in those silos, it makes it much harder to have that, that cooperation and, and to deal with unintended consequences. Cyber is one area. Climate change is another. Public health is another. This kind of these overall themes of resiliency, of how a change in one area like energy can really be related to something else like labor patterns and labor markets or housing and land use. I think it'd, it'd be really interesting to know how possible you think it is for the federal government to reinvent itself in ways where it can attack these big, big, critically important issues in ways that are functional and not just left in these silos of this is commerce, this is energy, this is defense, whatever it might be. You're quite right that our the fundamental contours of our executive branch and, by the way, co congressional oversight and allocations and appropriations system was basically set up to deal with, if not the 19th, then certainly the 20th century. And, and that makes sense where, where you have certain tasks and functions. Let's take agriculture for one. It is pretty, pretty much contained. I mean, we, we sort of know who the principal people are who, who are the, the focus in that industrial sector. We know its ramifications. And obviously, while we all need to have agriculture, and in that sense, it's, it affects all of us, 
Uh, nonetheless, the, the particular needs and requirements can, can be focused in a particular area. And that's true for everything, other departments in our federal government, the State Department, the Defense Department, et cetera. But we don't want everyone running foreign policy. It has to be handled and centralized in one area. That's pretty easy. But by contrast, there are things such as commerce and to your area, energy, which is a new, relatively new department, that cut across everything. I mean, everybody could say they're involved in commerce in one level or another. And of course, everybody uses energy. So you could say, gee, why do we need a Department of Energy? I think we're there or soon will be there in terms of cyber for the very same reasons, which is that this is something that is, it is so complex that, as I said, even the Cyberspace Solarium Commission recognized this cuts across departments and they proposed department, but at least a coordinator at the White House. That's a first step, a good step. But you are quite right that we do need greater centralization integration. That doesn't mean to say that there still shouldn't be particular areas of cyber expertise and focus within each department. I mean, clearly, clearly the Department of Energy, for example, needs to have its own capability of addressing cyber problems that are unique to nuclear power plants, the electric grid, etc. That's quite manifest. But we do need an overarching ability in the, in the executive branch, and I might add Congress too, to address whole-of-nation problems produced by cyber vulnerabilities. Yeah, it was interesting. I when Dara and I were putting together a client alert on the recent executive order for supply chain protections against cyber risks in the bulk power system, you know, our team in D.C. who was focusing on the same exact type of approach in an executive order in 2019 for a digital communications and and uh, and information technologies you know they pointed out these are really the same thing and when i look for, with our clients looking at smart grids and energy storage and the SCADA systems that interconnect power generating plants to the grid when is that communications and when is that infrastructure and when is it energy they at the end of the day are all the same thing well alan if i can if i can add i mean not not to just scale this up but we're not far from a universe in which we're talking about fleets of autonomous taxis or cars and then not as long after that you know a, a introduction of aircraft that are going to be more and more autonomous and these are commercial aircraft that we all fly and hopefully will fly again that's also envisaged to soon involve ships cargo ships that may be largely autonomous and you know talking about agriculture we're not far away from heavy equipment like tractors or combines or things of that nature also running on an autonomous ai system so to glenn's point the regulation has to be, on, on one hand, centralized to look at it from a holistic nation-state standpoint. The country has to look at it because the threats cross over, certainly weave into multiple areas of commerce and activity. But at the same time, whether it's a Department of Transportation or Department of Agriculture or whatever the case may be, they need to have their specialized understanding of how resilient or vulnerable is a car versus an aircraft versus a harvesting piece of equipment versus a internet switch. And so it is very pervasive and it has to be handled from both perspectives. Yeah, Dara, you make a really good point uh, when you mentioned autonomous AI which I suppose also could be deployed as part of the cyber defense uh, in some of these networks where the AI software learns what's baseline and then can be programmed to adapt and identify deviations, which could be coming from malware you know, or attacks. Thank you both very much. This has really been a very insightful and illuminating conversation, uh, partly reassuring, partly scary, but, but I, I really do appreciate the thoughts from both of you. And Glenn, I'd be remiss not to thank you too for your public service, kind of following in the footsteps 
of distinguished Milbank alumni like former Attorney General Elliot Richardson and Judge Webster. Bill Webster was the only one who was the director of both the CIA and the FBI. So thank you really very much. Thank you. It's been exciting. It's a privilege. Sounds corny, but it's true. No, it is true. And uh, the country's better off for it. So thank you. Terrific. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you. So, Glad, how, glad how is it you look younger than when you were here? <laughs> uh, you know, there's a feature on Zoom that there's a button that you can press. <laughs> oh, the fuzzy one. That, yeah. That, that, that says, make me look 20 years younger. And, uh, and I don't know if you have that on your Zoom. I, I got it on mine. It's an upgraded package. It's not awesome. You had that special button. NSA package. I don't get that. Yes, right. And you, make, you get 20 years younger uh, look, looking at it. Um, well, thank you. No, it's fine. It's hard to believe it's been an unbelievable transformational five years. Yeah. Well, you've certainly been in the right place at the right time. Got lucky. Yeah. Well, I know you're both very busy, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to do it. And obviously, the topic is so rich, we could go on for, for a long time. And there are a lot of resources online for folks to look at as well as everyone understands. But this, is, this has been a very enjoyable and useful conversation, at least for me. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Glenn. I, I second the comments. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you for organizing this, Alan. Okay. Thanks very much. Be well. Thank you for joining us for another Milbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at milbank.com.